0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of A Disciple's Point of View. So today we're going to talk about something that seems very timely with what is going on in the news cycle right now. And if you're into politics or anything like that, I'm going to come at it at an angle, not at the angle that you think I'm going to come at it from. So obviously we have a a former president who is trying to become president again. I don't want to name names, but you know, probably who it is here recently. His, um, I guess you could say a private residence was, uh, there was a search warrant that was, um, served at his private residence in Florida. And that's got a particular section of the political aisle in our country here in the United States of America, rather up in arms. So it seems very timely to talk about when a Christian should obey the government. And that's going to be our topic of discussion today. This isn't going to be a political thing like this side is better than this side, yada, yada. We're not going to go into any of that whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I think partisanship, by and large, for the Christian, I think you should do your civic duty. But to go to the extent that you're hyper-partisan is going to alienate people who might hear the gospel from you or would hear the gospel from you, but now won't because they're blinded because of your political leanings and stuff like that. I think our allegiance should be first and foremost to the Lord our God. And that basically, yeah, we can do our civic duty and we can, you know, do our voting and have our political views and all this and that, but ultimately all of that is going to pass away all of that is going to be just burned up with fire if you listen to my last series here on the channel the end is near you know that i believe that all this stuff is about to go by the wayside and god's judgment is about to fall on this earth so being so hyper-partisan i have learned is not a good thing for a christian to do now like i said you could do your civic duty and all this and that But I think the greater picture is we need to be faithful to the Lord and to spread the gospel to as many as who would hear it. But that begs the question, when should the Christian obey the government? When should the Christian not obey the government? If this happens, if this happens, if this happens. I'm going to give you my point of view today based on what the scriptures say and how I tend to read the scriptures, which is a plain sense interpretation which I have made clear time and time and time again, okay? So I'm going to start building my case that for the most part, the Christian should always obey the governing authorities that he or she has been placed under by God, meaning that wherever you've been born or whether you, wherever you currently live, you are to be subject to those governing authorities. And I will go into when you shouldn't be subject to those governing authorities as well. The very first thing I'm going to hit upon is Jesus' interaction with a Roman centurion. A little bit of background, if you don't know, uh, during the time that Jesus walked the earth, the nation of Israel was subject to the Roman Empire. Now, this had all started way back in the day around uh, 500 and some odd BC, right? You know, hundreds of years before Christ. And there was a kingdom called Babylon that ended up carrying the kingdom of Judah away into exile for 70 years. And that started what a lot of commentators have called the times of the Gentiles. And that is basically to be found in Daniel chapter two, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue. But I get ahead of myself. I don't want to get into that too much just yet. But that gives a little bit of background to Jesus's interaction with with this particular Roman centurion. So keep in mind, Israel is under occupation at this point by the Roman government. And there are elements within the Jewish culture that are called zealots. They want to free Israel from the Roman Empire to restore Israel back to the glory days of King David when they were a sovereign, strong nation. You could think of it as make Israel great again. I mean, realistically, that's what the zealots held to. They wanted to be free from the Roman Empire. Keep that in mind as we go through this interaction with the Roman centurion that Jesus is having. In Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, it says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered, Lord, Lord I am not worthy for you, that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great a faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east to west and sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed at that hour. And then it goes into something else that Jesus did. Now, what I want to address here isn't so much what the text has actually said as much as what was actually not said, okay? So this was the perfect time. If Jesus was against the governing authorities that were was over the nation of Israel at this point, this was the perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, basically, give up your position and take up arms against Rome, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't do any of that. As a matter of fact, he was more than willing to go to this individual's house and to heal a servant. But the, the centurion recognized, hey, there's a chain of command that I am under. Lord, you just say the word and I know it's going to be done from just right here. And apparently Jesus was hard-pressed to find that kind of faith even with the people of Israel who had the word of God, who had the law and the prophets, and who had the temple worship. And here a Gentile centurion, a non-Jewish centurion that probably, maybe, was polytheistic and worshipped other gods, or at least at some point in his life had done so because he was a Roman centurion. So, This is basically one illustration as to Jesus had the opportunity, and he clearly did not take that avenue, okay? So the next bit of scripture that we want to go to is found in the book of Romans, ironically enough. So the background to this book, keep in mind, this is to the church at Rome. So the gospel had spread far enough and had gone to the capital of the Roman Empire and there was a church there. Keep in mind, the church is a group of people that are called out by God. The Greek word for church in the original uh, language of the New Testament was ecclesia. And it means called out ones or the church is what we translate that into in English. So that's who this book is addressed to. I also want you to keep in mind the kind of government the Roman Empire was. It was a very brutal and immoral, compared to the law of God, immoral uh, society. The Roman em- the Roman army, rather, was called the Iron Legion. They were a very brutal, uh, very swift, very efficient, very—I guess you could call it—professional group of soldiers that basically conquered everywhere they went not only that but roman society was so immoral compared to again the law of god that there were a lot of sexual practices that were deemed to be okay in this society that clearly would violate the law of god they also were so violent that they actually obviously you've heard of the roman coliseum And sometimes in our modern culture, in the 21st century, we decry violence on television. Well, they did violence in real life for entertainment purposes. They would throw people into the pit at the Coliseum to see them get torn apart by either other gladiators or uh, actually wild animals. Uh, For a time, Christians were actually kind of, well, actually that wasn't in the Coliseum, but Christians were actually set on fire and used as torches throughout the city. Uh, at one point, I believe it was under Emperor Nero, N-E-R-O, and he was a particularly brutal uh, Roman emperor. Keep in mind, that's who we're talking about was in power at the time Paul wrote this letter, okay? All that in mind, it's Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So Paul is saying that, At present time of the Roman authorities, that is who he's telling the Christians to be subject to at this point. Verse two, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So he's telling the the believers at the church of Rome, don't resist Rome, submit to them. In verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to those who do evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will have the praise from the same. For he is God's minister for you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And that goes back to also in the book of Genesis in chapter 9, after the flood was finished, it says... Uh, If anyone sheds man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed. It was basically God giving capital punishment to human beings. Basically, if anybody were found to be guilty of murder, then they themselves would be put to death. Okay, So that's the context also by which Paul is writing uh, verse 4 in this particular chapter. Okay, I'm going to just read the rest of this that's relevant, and then we'll go into our next point. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due custom to whom whom customs fear to whom fear honor to whom honor okay so here's another point that i want to just piggyback off of this in matthew 22 starting in verse 15 it says then when the pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk they also sent him to his I'm sorry, they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of truth. Nor do you care about what anyone thinks, for you do not regard the person of men. Therefore, <laughs> basically trying to flatter him and then, you know, catch him in something. Tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So already, I've kind of gone into the background of the zealots, right, and the people who wanted to break free from the Roman Empire. So they're trying to catch Jesus, basically saying, "Yeah, you're supposed to pay taxes." And so they were going to try to basically say, "See, he uh, he uplifts Rome. He is not for. He he, he speaks against the law, etc." That's generally what they were going for. Starting in verse 18, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, "Why do you test me, you hypocrites?" show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and a denarius was basically a day's wage in the days of Jesus. Verse 20, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way because they couldn't really say anything to that. It's like, well, clearly the uh, God had put uh, them under the kingdom of Rome or the emperor um, empire rather of Rome. So. Um, You you really couldn't say it's like, you know, it's like, well, the money has his own inscription on it. So it's like, well, of course, it's going to end up belonging to Caesar. So therefore we should. okay yeah, I can't really I can't really refute that. And so, you know, obviously they caught him in a lie. But that's basically not the point. The whole point of it is, is that we are to be. Subject to the governing authorities. Not only that, but by the end of um, uh, Paul's passage in Romans 13, he even says pay taxes if you have taxes due. And that is piggybacked off what Jesus had already taught to his uh, disciples. Right. So. I talked about Daniel chapter two earlier and what is called the times of the, of the Gentiles. And I'm going to give just a really brief synopsis because it's kind of a side note. Basically, there was a king called Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, who actually took the kingdom of Judah into captivity uh, in accordance to what God had prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25 in verses 10 and 11. So this king had a particular dream, and he basically wanted to make sure that what he was being told by his wise men was indeed the right thing. So he said, I had a dream. You tell me what I dreamed and then tell me its interpretation. They thought, well, yeah, just tell us what the dream is, and we'll tell you the interpretation because that was always the accepted – that's always what was done. But he's like, no, 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 I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then tell me the interpretation. So long story short, Daniel realized after the king had put out an edict to kill all the wise men in the kingdom of Babylon, because they're like, we can't do that. Um, Daniel was given that vision by God after uh, Daniel going before God and praying, hey, please give me the vision so we don't all die, basically. And he was given um, the vision of what the dream was, and it was a statue made of uh, various kinds of metals going from the top being gold to the bottom being made of iron and clay. So basically it was a devolution kind of of the metals on the statue, right? And what it is basically you had a head of gold, you had a torso of silver, uh, you had the legs of iron. And then you had uh, the feet of iron and clay, okay? And these were deemed to be successive empires because Daniel even said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. So basically, the kingdom of Babylon is the head of gold, okay? that in mind a lot of commentators believe that the um the thighs and legs of iron was the roman empire because basically it was successive kingdoms that would come and be over the nation of israel and would dominate the nation of israel gentile powers hence jesus coined the term the times of the gentiles okay so that is part and partial to the reason why jesus did not advocate the overthrow of Rome because he being a part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead. See also John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, the word was God, the word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. So that in mind, and a lot of people believe that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Basically, he gave Israel to be under those particular powers, so it would make sense that Jesus wouldn't be sitting here advocating for the overthrow of Rome, right? So that makes perfect sense, because he's like, well, Israel's supposed to be under Gentile dominion at this point, so clearly I'm not going to advocate uh, that rome be overthrown by us or we break free etc whatnot because that's basically going to be the role of god if you listen to the end is near series basically jesus himself is the one who liberates israel ultimately and that's what it's all working up towards so our next point basically is that i you know i kind of want to make daniel a case study into this whole point Basically, if at any point we were going to say that they should rebel and that they should uh, overthrow the governing authorities and whatnot, that this would be a good time. Okay. And maybe we should back up for just a second. And now, actually, I am going to go into the book of Daniel in chapter one. And then we'll talk about the thing I was just going to bring up. So in Daniel chapter one. Uh, Daniel is probably around 15, 16 years old, right? He is a young person in the kingdom of Judah, and he has three friends named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as many refer to them as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were those Babylonian names that were given to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But we don't remember those. We remember the Babylonian names. Yet we call Daniel Daniel, and his name was Belshazzar, but I can never say it. Belshazzar or something like that. At any rate, they were carried away into captivity into Babylon, again, per Jeremiah 25 verses 10 and 11, which was the prophecy that was given to the nation of Israel saying, you're going to go into exile for 70 years. They didn't resist, but stayed true to God and his law. Okay. See also Daniel chapter one verses eight through 16. And that's basically where they were given food from the king's table, right? Because A little bit of background as to why that happened is because Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah were actually going to be raised up, taught, and um, uh, educated in the way of the Babylonians so that they could serve in the king's court. And as such, they were given food from the king's table, but apparently there was a lot of food in there that violated the Mosaic Law in terms of what foods they could eat and what foods they couldn't eat. Probably a lot of it was pork, right? They were forbidden by the uh, Mosaic law from eating any kind of pig or pork products, right? So they're like, hey, we can't eat this stuff, yada, yada, yada. And the servant was like, you know, hey, the king's going to have my head if he sees that you're uh, basically nutritionally deficient from the other people. And Daniel was like, you know what? I'll tell you what, just give us vegetables and water for a period of 10 days and then you judge for yourselves. Uh, to see whether or not we look worse off than the others. Turns out they actually look better than the others. And so he's like, okay, no problem. So in that sense that God wanted to be faithful to God and his law, and it worked out for the best. And he honored God in that respect. Uh, Daniel did not only resist, but he um, served under the king faithfully until uh, the Medo-Persian Empire came in and took over basically conquering the kingdom of Babylon. See also Daniel chapter 1 verse 21. Okay, so I'm going to bring up now what I was going to jump to before I talked about that point. So the question then remains, I've talked about when the Christian should uh, and should not obey the law of God, right? Or I should, not the law of God, the uh, the governing authorities. Okay. When should the Christian rebel against the governing authorities and say, no, I'm not doing that? We're going to talk about that right now. So, probably the best and first example is going to be under the New Testament writings in the book of Acts. This isn't necessarily the governing authority, but it is a religious authority that does govern the local life. I guess you could say in Israel at the time or shortly after the time that Jesus ascended into heaven. So basically the apostles are, well, the disciples are called apostles at this point. And Jesus has already ascended to heaven, like I've already said before. And this is in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 18. It says, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. So basically, it was this whole thing of Jesus has already died and risen from the dead. Not only that, but he's already ascended into heaven after being with them for 40 days. Okay, so they've already received the Holy Spirit. They've already been really bold in speaking in public places, speaking out against the religious authorities, yada, 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 and and telling people basically that the new covenant had come. Right. And the religious authorities of the old covenant were basically commanding them, hey, you're not to teach in this name anymore. And verse 19 is the key point that I'm trying to make right now. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So that's the thing. They were told by the religious authorities, you're not to teach in this name anymore. And they said, you know what? We've been told to go preach the gospel. You judge whether it's right that we obey God or whether we obey you. And that, my friends, is the key point. If our government or whatever government you're under tells you at any point that you cannot worship God or that you have to renounce the name of Jesus Christ or they're going to whatever, put you in prison, they're going to execute you, they're going to execute a member of your family, etc., etc. Christian, remain true to Christ and his word then you can rebel against the governing authorities because they then have gone against the word of god okay they can go against the word of god by saying all kinds of manner of immorality is okay that you know whatever sexual practices are good uh that strip clubs and pornography and all this and that is all well and good and legal but the minute they tell you you're not to worship jesus or you're not to spread the gospel, that Christian is when you will rebel against the governing authorities. And only in that point should you rebel. You should not try to overthrow the government. And that is a little bit of a um, a side note. The American Revolution was actually anti-biblical. It really wasn't biblical for the founding fathers to have rebelled against the King of England. But there is such a thing called God's perfect and permissive will being, you know, obviously his perfect will, we do everything he wants us to us to do all the time. And the perfect will, of, or I'm sorry, the um, permissive will of God, where we basically, the, he utilizes the sinful inclinations of men to still turn things the way that he wants them to go. And I could go on a side note why the um, United States of America being formulated was probably a good thing. But that's another podcast for another day point is is that basically whenever we're told to go against God uh we can rebel against that governing authority two more examples both from the book of Daniel that I'm going to illustrate my point here in Daniel chapter 3 shortly after king Nebuchadnezzar got this um I guess you call it this revelation of the dream that he had and what it actually meant and whenever he was told he was the head of gold he got then a uh a really big head about himself, and he went and made a statue of gold that basically he decreed that everybody was to worship. Anytime they heard music at all, they were to s- bow down and worship the image of, of him, basically worshiping him as a god. So it's kind of like you totally missed the point, king, but that's okay because you're the king. However, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did not worship the image of gold and we have the fiery furnace the story of the fiery furnace and uh, this obviously can be found in Daniel chapter 3 by the way and so as a result they were thrown into the furnace right and they were expected to be burned up and it was so uh King Nebuchadnezzar got so worked up and they're like he's like make it seven times hotter than it's normally supposed to be because they basically said we're not going to worship you we're going to, have to stay true to the God of Israel. And he's like, Arr! and so um, it was uh, so hot that the men who threw them in there were actually killed instantly. Right. However, whenever they were looking, apparently it was to the point that they could see what was happening inside of it. Whenever they were looking, they not only saw the three, but they saw a fourth walking around with them. And they, one looked like the son of the gods. I believe that was the angel of the Lord. I think that was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but I really do believe that if they were shielded from that hot of fire, that it would take God himself to really protect them, that an angel probably would, I, I don't know, I don't know how uh, God allows angels to operate, but I would think that that would be more of an act of God and that God should get the glory for that kind of salvation, even though it's temporary in nature, but that kind of a salvation um, most likely it was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ that was in there with them. That's just my, my belief, my two cents. The other example in the book of Daniel is in chapter 6 of the book. And this is now whenever the Medo-Persian Empire had come in and had conquered the Babylonian Empire. It's going to be King Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire. And he basically... Uh, was duped into making a law by his wise men that anybody praying to anybody else other than King Darius should be put to death, right? Because they wanted to trap Daniel. They didn't like Daniel. They didn't like the fact that he stood up for God. They didn't like the fact that he was standing up for righteousness. Does that sound familiar in our current culture today? Anyway, so Daniel's like, I'm still going to say my prayers however many times a day he was saying them. And he faced Jerusalem while he did so. Not only that, he was visible while he was doing it. So he literally just basically uh, kind (laughs) of flagrantly did this. And so these wise men go to King Darius and go, see... See, what that your, your, your boy over here, Daniel, he's violating your own law, and it cannot be rescinded. Apparently, that was a thing in the Medo-Persian Empire. The king could not supersede his own laws that he had put into effect, and he basically begrudgingly threw Daniel into the den of lions because the thought and process was that basically, you know, we're going to starve out these lions, and they're going to basically have that person for dinner. However, whenever Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, there was uh, an angel of the Lord that shut the mouths of the lions, right? To where Daniel was not touched. And it basically did sound like that uh, the king was urgently expecting Daniel to be able to survive it. He goes, basically, uh, um, you know, has your God uh, saved you and you know, Daniel answers him. He goes, Yes, King. Actually, now that you mention it, he did. Uh, and so, <laughs> interestingly enough, whenever those wise men, uh, whenever Daniel was taken out of the lion's den, those wise men were then thrown into the lion's den and they were torn bit from bit. So, clearly, obviously, Daniel was being protected by God. Okay. So, those are three examples from the scriptures. where we as Christians can rebel against the governing authorities and we can tell them no we're not doing that but by and large for the most part the christian is mandated to to abide by what the governing authorities tell us what to do are you to get a driver's license in order to drive yes um do that uh, are you to pay property taxes is taxation theft should we refuse to pay taxes no we are as being christians we are mandated to pay our taxes even though they're exorbitant even though um, they don't seem fair according to the word of god we are to obey the governing authorities until the point that they violate god's word and realistically folks we can't sit here and try to justify this or that or anything else but if they try to tell us we cannot worship the way that god has told us to worship or that we cannot speak about the name of Jesus, or that we cannot spread the gospel, then that is the point, my friends, when we can rebel against the governing authorities. But by and large, and for the most part, we should always, always, always obey the governing authorities for the most part. That is a testimony to them because it tells them what kind of people we are. It makes us a more attractive uh, fragrance for them to potentially hear the gospel because who wants to hear the gospel from a rebel, right? If, if you uh, perceive somebody as being your enemy, you're not going to want to hear the gospel from them, which is why I said at the beginning of this podcast that realistically speaking, it is not good to be so hyper-partisan as a Christian because our job, the only reason God leaves us here is not just to simply leave us here. It's to build us and perfect us into the image of Christ, but it's also to spread the gospel. He is utilizing his church to spread his message of salvation to anybody else who will hear it and who will receive it. Speaking of, if you're listening to this podcast and if you don't know Jesus Christ and what it is he offers you to the, and to the world, I want you to listen to the next segment coming up in just a few seconds. this point in the podcast I want to reach out to you and if you have never done so if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ I want to invite you to do that today all you need to do is believe believe that Jesus is who he said he was he was God in the flesh believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead confess him as Lord And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that he is who he said he was, and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and heart and everything through a process, if you will to embody what has already taken place in your heart by simply praying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead, and now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life, and I wanna follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. That's all you need to do, and your life will change. Your life will change, not so much materially, not so much in terms of the world, but your life will change in your standing before God in that you may know that you can have eternal life. The apostle John wrote that when he was penning First John. He said, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but so that you can know. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with something you don't or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.